0: Liftoff. We have a liftoff. And
1: welcome to the Dolby Anglican podcast. My name is David, and I'm one of the ministers at Dolby Anglican Parish. We're a church that's all about knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit anglicandolby.org.au. This week's sermon is entitled "Committed to Serve," and it is focusing on Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13, which is one of Jesus' harder parables. Uh, It's part of a series called Frontline Good News from Dr. Luke. And we hope you enjoy the sermon.
0: The Lord be with you. And also with you. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke chapter 16, beginning at the first verse. Glory Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. And as it is rather long, would you like to be seated? Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe, my master? Eight hundred gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it four hundred. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill, and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than they are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, Who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ.
1: Well, friends, would you please pray for me as I pray for you as we open up this very strange parable. Loving Lord God, we thank you so much for the gifts that you lavish on us. We thank you that you've given us the breath in our lungs and the beat in our hearts. You've given us this beautiful morning to share and enjoy. You've given us the clothes that we're wearing, uh, the food in our bellies, and um, the hope in our hearts. And so, Lord, as we seek to apply this passage to our lives, particularly in the way we use our money, we pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what is money? A couple of years ago, I worked in retail and my boss, who was obsessed with money, gave me this definition. She said, money is the ability to tell people to get stuffed. She, she used a four-letter word, but I'm not going to use that in church this morning. <laughs> now, at the time, I was at university and I was studying economics. And in economics, the definition of money is that money is a medium of exchange. I think I preferred my boss's definition more at the time. Today, Jesus is going to teach us about what money is all about and what we're meant to do with it. And so I encourage you to, if you're not there already, to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Um, We're looking at verses 1 to 13. And in Luke... Chapter 16, verse 9, it's page 1300, 1300 of the Church Bibles. Um, So, in verse 9, Jesus says this, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. This week, we're going to unpack what he means by first looking at one of the most confusing parables in the Bible, It's very simple application and Jesus reminder that you can't serve both God and money. So first, for the most confusing parable. Luke 16, one to eight, is one of the most difficult parables to understand because it brings up so many questions. Firstly, why does the manager short sell his boss? Secondly, why does the boss commend this dodgy deal? And thirdly, does Jesus really want us to follow this example? So, as we unpack this parable, it's important to see where it fits in the story of Jesus' life. In Luke 15, in verse 1, if you flick back to verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. He's at a party in Bethany. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus in Luke 16 is at the same party. He's surrounded by the Pharisees, the good religious people. But he's also bringing in tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees chip him for it. In response, Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son which Mike looked at last Sunday, sometimes called the prodigal son. In these parables, something is lost and found, and each time their value increases. First you get a sheep. A sheep is less valuable than a coin. A widow finds a coin, and that's more valuable. And then finally, a son, the most valuable of all. Each time, Jesus is taking a dig at the Pharisees. Tax collectors and sinners are coming into relationships with God, and all the Pharisees can worry about is status and reputation and money. The parables of the lost things show us repeatedly that people matter more to God than money. Jesus is saying, this is God's economy. People matter most. In chapter 16, Jesus stops speaking to everyone at the party and focuses directly at the disciples. Look at 16 verse 1. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Now, Jesus is obviously riffing off the story of the prodigal son because this is is a story about a prodigious, it's the same word, prodigious manager who wasted his boss's possessions. Now at the time, rich folk would appoint managers in charge of their properties so that they could go on and live the high life. Managers did business deals that their masters knew nothing about and acted in their name. In verse 2, we see the management's wastefulness gets him fired. So the rich man called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. In the words of Donald Trump in The Apprentice, you're fired. You're fired, says the boss to the manager. And the manager knows his time is up. Now, at this point, it's important to see that Jesus is not saying that any of this stuff is good. Obviously, getting fired is bad, and the manager is so guilty that he's not even trying to protest his innocence. But this is where the manager gets clever. He says in verse 3, "'I'm too weak to dig, and I'm too proud to beg,' which is ironic because he wasn't too proud to steal. (laughs) But he has this eureka moment. And he realizes that there is someone who he might be able to leverage. Time is of the essence here. Soon the boss will let everyone know that his manager has been fired. However, the manager has a little bit of time before it gets around that the old guy has got a, got the sack and that the boss has appointed a new manager. Verse five picks up the story. Look with me at verse five. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The manager short-sells his boss. But it doesn't matter because he's gone anyway. Instead, he makes friends with the debtors by saving them swimming pools worth of olive oil and houses of wheat. These are big values. The amount of oil we're talking about was the annual yield of a large olive grove. The wheat the debtor was talking about was more than a regular family could produce in 20 years. The dodgy manager is saving the debtors thousands if not millions of dollars and setting himself up for the future. When he gets kicked out of his master's household, he has some doors that he'll be able to knock on and some favours that he'll be able to ask for. Now, up to this point in the story, it's simple enough. The dodgy manager gets fired. He goes and does dodgy things, and the debtors are very, very happy to get money taken off their debt. The debtors get a good deal, the manager gets a good deal, and we can assume that the manager gives what he gets from the debtors back to his old boss. But why, oh why, does the boss say, well done? Now I must admit, I've read pretty much every commentary I can get my hands on on this, and I'm still not 100% sure how to answer this question. But there are three theories Uh, that come up in a lot of the commentaries as to why this dodgy dealer did what he did and why the rich man commended him for him. The first theory has to do with interest. In the Bible, charging interest is forbidden. Good Jews weren't allowed to lend money and expect a return. If a priest caught you charging interest, you could be punished. To get around this, people would make deals publicly saying they were giving a 1,000 bushels of wheat to someone only to give them 8,000. The debtor then expected, the, the owner then expected the debtor to pay back a 1,000. If this is what's going on in the story, then the manager simply knocks off the interest charged and the boss has to praise him publicly because he doesn't want the community to find out that he's been been charging interest illegally. The second theory has to do with commission, and it's a little bit similar to the first one. What a boss would do is they would lend out 800 bushels of wheat and the manager would oversee the business deal and expect 1,000 bushels of wheat in return and then out of that 200 difference, he would take a commission. So what some scholars think is happening here is that the manager is simply sacrificing his commission. He's whacking his commission off, giving the debts back to his old boss, and the boss can see his shrewdness as a businessman and goes, well done, that's cool. The third and final theory, and the one that I think is probably more accurate is that these are bad debts the values are so huge that the poor debtors could never possibly repay them their crops might have failed and they're up to their necks in debt there's no way the boss or the manager will get anything from these debtors unless something drastic is done The manager can see the writing on the wall, and so he goes for broke. And he goes to the desperate debtors and gives them huge discounts so that they might get something instead of nothing. The manager makes friends. The boss makes money from a bad debt and commends the bad manager for it. Everyone's happy. Now, while the mechanics of this story are difficult to interpret, it really just has a very simple application. Jesus leaves us in no doubt as to what to do with this story because he gives his disciples a clear instruction in verse 9. Look with me at verse 9. He says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Many call this parable a good lesson from a bad example. Jesus is telling us to use the worldly wealth we have to build relationships for heaven. Jesus is using an argument technique called an argument from minor to major. In our world today, we might say uh, a monkey could do better, a better job at refereeing that game. Yeah? You watch the Wallabies game on the weekend, maybe on Thursday. Maybe you feel that way. Anyway, <laughs> or you might say uh, you might look at a piece of abstract art and say my five-year-old could do a better job at painting that painting. Jesus' point in using this type of argument is that if dodgy managers can use and manipulate money to make life easier in the future for themselves, the people of the light if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are a person of the light, should be even better at using money for God's purposes. There's a joke about a billionaire who died leaving their billions to their three sons, a doctor, a priest, and a banker. And the condition in the will was that at the funeral, each of his three sons should throw $10,000 into the grave. And so the day comes, the grieving sons come before the grave, the doctor throws in a big wad in an envelope down into the grave and walks off crying. The priest comes forward and throws a similar wad into the grave and walks off crying. The banker walks up to the grave and throws one little piece of paper into the grave and walks off unperturbed. After the funeral, the doctor comes clean, he's sweating, he's crying, and he says, brothers, I couldn't do it. I looked at that $10,000 and I thought about the medical center I could build with that sort of money. And so I kept half of it and threw the rest in. And the priest goes, "Oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness I have a confession to make as well. I I looked at that $10,000 and I thought about the orphanage that I could build for poor children with that sort of money. And so I kept $4,000 and threw 6,000 into the grave." The banker looked at both of them and said, "You guys are fools. I threw him a check for the full amount. <laughs> this is the sort of point Jesus is making. Many of us are obsessed with money, even Christians. We know our mortgage values, our superannuation balances, our Centrelink payments, our investment portfolios, and our bank balances. But sadly, and this is sometimes true for me and the way I spend money, God is an afterthought in our financial decisions. We can't take any of our money with us when we die. And all of it comes from God. So we have to be deliberate. We have to be smart about using the wealth that God's given us. God has been so generous to us so we can wisely extend that generosity onto others. Jesus expands his teachings in the next verses. Look with me at verse 10. He says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever, can be, uh, whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy with handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And you have, if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Jesus isn't calling us to use our wealth dishonestly. He's telling us to use the worldly wealth God's given us wisely. Verse 12 is particularly valid here because like the manager, all the resources we have belong to God anyway. But true riches are found with God in heaven. Jesus says something similar in Matthew 6. You don't need to flick that. I'll read it for you. He says, "'Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven "'where moths and vermin do not destroy, "'where thieves do not break in and steal. "'For where your treasure is, "'there your heart will be also.'" Friends, this is what we're doing every time we give to our church. We don't do it because it's compulsory. We don't do it because we're forced to. We do it because we love God and because the church is the only thing that lasts with God into eternity. Think about that. This building won't last forever. But God's people will. And every time a sinner encounters the saving grace of Jesus Christ, another daughter or son comes back into God's family and all of heaven rejoice. We get to use what God's given us to equip the church to help people come into relationship with God. And this is why the final verses of this passage should hit us like a freight train. Look with me at verse 13. And it's really powerful that it ends on this note. Jesus said, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The word Jesus uses here for money in King James English is mammon. Mammon. We don't use the word very often anymore. Mar- mammon was an old Syrian god of money. You pray to mammon in the hope of him making you rich. We, think of, we often think of how we spend money as a financial matter, but here Jesus shows us that it is a deeply spiritual matter. Every transaction we make, big or small, can be used in the service of God, or it can be used to glorify the God of mammon. Every day we're faced with choices about how we spend our money. And so I encourage you this week to ask yourself, how can I use my money to glorify my maker? How can I use this purchase to make friends and point them to Jesus? How can I use my money to foster healthy relationships with the people I love and the people around me to glorify God and to point others back to Him? It's hard, intentional work. Jesus isn't telling us to use our money to manipulate people, but he is telling us to use the wealth God's given us to make friends and influence with sincerity and love. Some love money and use people. Here we're being told to use the money we have to love people and make Jesus known to them. What is money? It's simply a tool God's given us to bless others and to glorify him. God has given us this beautiful world to care for and enjoy. Jesus purchased our lives and won us back on the cross. Our salvation cost him his life. The Holy Spirit, even now, is calling and guiding us to use our temporal money, the temporal money we have today, to sow into a harvest that will last forever. May this teaching, sown in our hearts, bear fruit and continue to grow in us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.